Now, just to remind us where we've been, we're thinking about the integration of our mission around the Great Commission and how we should uh, bring things together around this centrality of the gospel of the kingdom of God in the Lordship of Christ, which is where the Great Commission begins. And uh, in our first session, we thought how that commits us to that task of making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. Uh, in other words, the word of building the church through the uh, central tasks of evangelism and teaching within the church uh, and in the world. And uh, I hope that that made sense. So we come to the other side of the diagram over here, uh, justice and compassion, uh, the works of mercy and love and compassion in serving society, the more social dimension of Christian responsibility. Uh, and the first question that might be asked is, where is that in the Great Commission? And what I want to argue is that it is implied within what Jesus said when he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, said Jesus. And even before we reflect on what the content of that would be, I think it's just worth noticing that those disciples hearing Jesus say those words would immediately have heard the echo of Scripture that is in them because they were more familiar with the book of Deuteronomy than probably you are, or any of us are. They knew that in that book of Deuteronomy, again and again and again, either God or Moses says words like that. He says, be careful, O Israel, to observe all that I, the Lord your God, have commanded you. And here is Jesus saying that, those words, echoing the very scriptural foundations, of course, on which all his own teaching and life had been modeled and built. And here's just one example of, uh, of the kind of thing that Deuteronomy commanded to the Israelites to Im imitate and walk in the ways of God. Uh, this is Deuteronomy chapter 10, where Moses says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. So he's the supreme God of the universe. He owns it. He runs it. But when this great God, your God, starts godding, if one can put it like that, you know, does stuff in the world. What does he do? Well, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. This is the countercultural God. This is the God who you will find doing God stuff among the familyless, widows and orphans, among the homeless and landless, uh, the immigrants, the migrants, the refugees, the foreigners supporting, wanting them to be provided with food and clothing. That's what God is like, says Deuteronomy here and in many other places, of course. And then the very next verse, verse 19 says, and you are to love the foreigners, the aliens, because you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, chapter 6. Love your neighbor as yourself in um, Leviticus, chapter 19, and love the foreigner as you love yourself, according to Leviticus. So here is this call within Deuteronomy that the people of God should be like God in showing compassion, seeking justice for the poor and the needy and the marginalized, just as God himself had done for Israel as they knew in their own story. And so it seems to me that in the same way, almost with the same tone of voice, Jesus is saying, Make disciples and teach them to obey what I have commanded you, which you well know was rooted in and founded on the Scriptures themselves, certainly including the exercise of compassion and love for the needy uh, and the seeking of justice. 
For example, Jesus said, doesn't he, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and by the way, even if we were just doing an exegetical exercise on the Great Commission, there it is, end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, we should immediately be saying, okay, let's go back through the gospel and see what Jesus did say to his disciples how they should live. And he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Now, I know, of course, the word is righteousness in most of our English Bibles. Uh, righteousness, justice are held together within the Old Testament scriptures and in the words and language and thought world of Jesus. So, yes, of course, it includes hungering and thirsting for a right relationship with God, uh, which we know comes through responding to his grace by faith. But that right relationship with God uh, in the scriptures of, of Jesus and Jesus' own teaching had to include right relationships with people. It was not just a vertical thing, but also a horizontal thing. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that, says Jesus. Or in chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God, which of course is what he was preaching about all the time. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, his righteousness, not just his righteousness for yourself, but God's righteousness exercised within the world, which was what the kingdom of God was all about, according to the Psalms and other places of the scriptures. So it's there in those early chapters, but it's even more prominent when you come to a passage like Matthew 23, verse 33, where Jesus, you'll recall, was having a, a time of criticism of the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, and he said, you guys are fantastic in the way you observe all the minutiae of the law, even your herbs and spices you are tithing. But he says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, the really heavy stuff. And what does Jesus say that weightier matters are? He, that these three words, justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's Jesus' language for what he regarded as important within the law. And I think there's almost no doubt that that is a, a very self-conscious allusion, if not a direct quotation. It's certainly an echo of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where God had said, what does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? So I think that as we hear these words of Jesus in the Great Commission, that we're to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded you, Jesus is standing on that great scriptural platform of the ethical teaching of what it meant to be a follower of, a believer in, a subject of Yahweh the Lord God, who was now embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he's mandating that and committing his apostles to do the same. I think that's what he meant when he said, you are the light of the world. It comes out of that same scriptural background. It's probably pretty surprising to the disciples, don't you think? Uh, when Jesus said, hey, you guys gather around a minute, you know, and there are a bunch of these scruffy ex-fishermen and a tax collector and a former terrorist, you know, Simon the Zealot and so on. He says, you know who you are? You are the light of the world. Wasn't that a bit surprising? Well, who, us? No, he says, yes, you are what God called Israel to be. God said, I've made you to be a light for the nations, and that's what you are, as the nucleus of the people of God. But what did Jesus actually mean by that phrase, being the light of the world? Did he, did he mean that they would be those who would proclaim the gospel, the truth of the gospel, which the apostle Paul describes as light? Do you remember in, in 2 Corinthians 4, that the God who said, let there be light has shone the light of the glory of God into our hearts? dispelling the darkness of Satan. Well, yes, of course, 
I'm sure that if Jesus, if we'd been able to discuss this with him, he would have included that. The apostles were to be preachers of the truth of the gospel. But what Jesus said at this moment on that text was, let your light so shine before people that they may, what, see your good deeds, your lives, the way you're living, the attractiveness of lives which are filled with mercy and love and goodness and justice. And that idea of ethical light also, I think, comes from the Scriptures that Jesus, of course, knew inside out, and so did his disciples, because this is the way light is used in one place in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58, very familiar words, I'm sure, to us, where God says, is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free, to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your righteousness will go before you. You notice that combination again of light and righteousness? It's practical, it's ethical. And a few verses later, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness. And a couple of chapters later, as God talks about how the nations will come to your light because the Lord himself is in your midst showing this way of living. So the Old Testament then commanded the people of God to be a people of compassion and justice. Jesus endorses that in his life and his teaching, and he commands his disciples to pass it on through the Great Commission. And they did. I think it's important to recognize that the book of Acts and the letters of Paul show us a church which was passionately committed to the communication of the gospel, to the preaching of the word, and to bringing people to know about Jesus and to repent and turn in faith to Jesus. Yes, it also shows us a people who alongside that and indeed integrated into that were living the life of a community that was also seeking to address the needs of people. So that uh, Luke can tell us in Acts chapter 4 uh, that within this early church, he, he puts side by side that many people were coming to the faith because the apostles were bearing witness to the, re to the resurrection and immediately adds, and there were no needy persons among them. And once again, that's a quotation from Deuteronomy because in Deuteronomy 15, God had said, there need be no poor persons among you if you will be obedient, if you will follow my ways. And Luke takes the precise Greek words of that phrase in Deuteronomy 15 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and builds it into what he says about the early church, almost word for word, just changing the singular to plural, uh, but using the same language. There were no poor persons among them. In other words, they gave their spiritual life through the Holy Spirit, economic dress and reality. So the two go together. It's integrated. It's not something we have to, as it were, struggle to relate together. They actually belong to each other. Or you look at uh, the early missionary life of the Apostle Paul, and I sometimes like to put it like this. What was Paul's first missionary journey? Now, I was brought up uh, to believe, of course, uh, in the, the missionary journeys of Paul. And we had maps, I'm sure you probably still have them, you know, maps at the back of your Bible. And one of those maps will be Paul's missionary journeys. And there they are, sort of concentric circles from Antioch around Asia Minor, and then a little bit further across to Ephesus, and then across to Greece, and then eventually to Rome. Wonderful. All Paul's great uh, journeys of missionary church planting and ministry. But actually, the first time that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent 
by the church in Antioch under the power and information of the Holy Spirit was not in Acts chapter 13 when they were sent and went off to Asia Minor to preach the gospel there, but when we read in chapter 11, Acts 11, that during this time prophets came from Jerusalem and through the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And that happened during the reign of Claudius, says Luke. And the disciples, each one as they were able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters in Judea, and this they did, sending it, sending their gift by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This was their first missionary journey, the first time they were sent on a mission. In fact, at the end uh, of chapter 12, we read that Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission. They returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. The first missionary sending of Barnabas and Saul was for famine relief. And there's no contradiction here. This was the church in Antioch because they were well mixed. They had an ethnic diversity. They were well taught by Barnabas and then by Saul of Tarsus. And so they see this reality of responding to the needs of people under the power of the Holy Spirit, both materially and spiritually. I think that journey for famine relief made a big impact on Saul of Tarsus, just as witnessing the stoning of Stephen did earlier in the book of Acts. Because forever after this, in Paul's missionary journeys, he was as concerned in his care for the poor as he was in his preaching of the gospel. And you say, how on earth do I know that? Well, because he tells us. He actually says that in Galatians chapter 2, where he's talking about another occasion when he went to Jerusalem uh, to, as it were, share with the apostles in Jerusalem the gospel that he was preaching among the Gentiles, uh, and he says that they accepted, this is what he says in Galatians 2, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. That was the task to which he'd been sent, and God was at work with him just as he was with Peter. All they asked, he says in verse 10, is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along, says Paul. He said, they didn't have to tell me to do that. Paul said, I was doing it anyway. He was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and he was concerned about the issues uh, of, of poverty. And so, in fact, he has a lot to say about that, as you know in his letters in Corinthians and Romans. So there, it seems to me, is a, uh, a way in which we can see that this integration between uh, the concern for those issues of poverty and need and all sorts of other aspects. I mean, I I won't take time to go into issues of justice as well, uh, questions of advocacy on behalf not only of the poor but also of the enslaved, of uh, human trafficking, all sorts of issues in which, historically speaking, the church has typically tended to get involved uh, all down through the ages, even from the earliest centuries. Uh, the, the pagans of Rome recognized that the Christians were remarkably different because when there was plague or illness or suffering, they cared for our poor and not just their own, says one of the Roman historians. They recognized that this commitment to good works uh, as the expression of faith, not as the means of salvation, but as the means of obeying one's faith, obedience to the gospel, was what actually marked them out as different from the surrounding society. So they preached the gospel, and they got involved in the needs of the people around them. Faith and works, word and deed, proclamation and demonstration, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. 
Speaking in a theological college, it's just worth noticing that Jesus did not just say, teaching them all that I taught you, because that's somehow what we think theology is about. We just teach people what we got taught, what Jesus taught, what the apostle is just a matter of teaching. What Jesus actually says is, teach them to obey all that I commanded you. It's not just a matter of what we learn, it's about a matter of what we live. And that, of course, goes right back to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount itself. And so that's very much part of the Lausanne tradition, uh, part of what is now called an integrated or integral understanding of mission, that these things are not separable, uh, that it's not a question of, of, of one rather than the other or one instead of the other or one as a means to the other, but that they go together. They are like, you know, eating and breathing uh, in your human body. They are different. But you have to have both if you're going to have a living body. And it doesn't make much sense to ask which has priority, because if you stop doing either of them, you won't survive very long. So that integration, then, that's what I'm trying to get here, that the centrality of the gospel, the primacy of the kingdom of God to be proclaimed, to be declared, and to be embodied in lives that actually are living under the sovereignty of God. Bring these things together is what I'm seeking to say. So there we are. That's the, uh, both those sides, building the church through evangelism and teaching, serving society in all those areas that uh, the church can get involved in, not doing them as separate, but seeing them together as integrated in the Lordship of Christ. If we serve society, as I said earlier, we do it because Jesus is Lord. Not just because people have needs. Yes, of course. Not just out of pity. Not just out of a sense of justice. We do it because Jesus is Lord. And therefore, that must also infiltrate and impregnate and show that what we do, we do because we are disciples of Christ, which therefore eventually leads to the opportunity, of course, to bear witness, to speak for him, uh, and to share the, the, the good news of the gospel. So let's move on then to the third of these areas. Um, and uh, I'll just get my watch off because I need to keep an eye on the time, but it'll be plenty of time also for, for questions and discussion at the end. So we move to the third one, caring for creation building the church through evangelism and teaching, the first two marks of the church, serving society through compassion and justice, the third and fourth of the five marks of the church, and caring for creation. Now, I think we could, in fact, have started here. In fact, one time when I preached a sermon much shorter, but in this sort of area, I did start here because it's where Jesus starts. Because Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And we need to remember that that phrase, heaven and earth, was the characteristic, scriptural, Jewish way of speaking about creation. It's where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's also where the Bible ends, of course, uh, in Revelation 21, when John says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, a new restored creation. As the city of God, he says, comes down from heaven, and the dwelling place of God is with us. Not us going somewhere else, but God coming here. And so, when Jesus says these words, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, he is speaking words that could only be spoken from the lips of God himself. Otherwise, they'd be blasphemous. Because Jesus is echoing the words, as it says in the screen, of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. And again, these apostles would know these words. 
where God had said to Israel, in fact, it comes twice, but there it is in, Deut- in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, Israel, take to heart this day that the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. No other God, because there's no other place to be God in. <laughs> He's the God of all creation. And all creation belongs to him, is owned by him, and is run by him. And so when Jesus stands on the Mount of Ascension, it's no wonder that Matthew tells us that when they saw him, they worshipped him, even though some doubted. Matthew is honest at that point, but he's also remarkably surprising. Who were these people who had come to Galilee to see Jesus in the Mount? And they were Jews. They were men and women who knew that you must never, ever worship a human being or a mere human being. But they worship him because they know who he is now. And he confirms it. He says, you know who I am. All authority in heaven and on earth. Yahweh God, the Lord God of Israel, the God of all creation, is who is walking among you, is who is living among you, is the one whom God has raised, the crucified, risen Lord Jesus, Lord of creation. And, of course, the Apostle Paul takes that even further, doesn't he? Uh, as, of course, does Hebrews and the, uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 1, we well know. But uh, perhaps this is the most famous passage, Colossians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about Christ in relation to creation. And he says, in him, that is in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Now, Paul could not make it any clearer than that. That phrase, all things, was the characteristic, again, Jewish way of speaking about the whole creation. And in order to make absolutely sure, he adds the phrase heaven and earth. So it's double. And the words all things, tapanta, come five times in these few verses. So it's, it's unambiguous that Paul is relating Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Lord Jesus, crucified and risen, to the earth, to creation as a whole. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. And then he talks about the church. He's the head of the church, the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then he carries on, verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The whole of creation, says Paul, is created by Christ and for Christ, is sustained by Christ, and has been reconciled to God by the cross of Christ. Again, I think Paul is almost certainly, as it were, subverting the claims of Caesar in there. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. Well, Rome made peace by the blood of the cross. They made peace by crucifying people who didn't agree with them. And they made a desert and called it peace, as one of their famous own historians said. But here is Paul saying, no, no, God has made peace for the whole creation, and he's done it through the cross. So the cross of Christ, therefore, is cosmic and creational in its scope, as well as personal and spiritual. It is both, not one or the other, but both together. And so it seems to me, therefore, that if that is the case, we can't separate our personal submission to Jesus as Lord in the language of the Great Commission, the Lord of heaven and earth and all creation. We can't separate our personal submission. Jesus is my Lord. I worship him. I submit to him. I'm his disciple. I'm his follower. 
We can't separate that from how we think and act and work in relation to the earth that belongs to him, if it's his property. I think the, uh, the, the, the fact is, of course, that many Christians do do that. Uh, and it is a, a sad, to me, a very baffling fact uh, that this area of ecological concern and creational concern, or sometimes called environmental, although I don't really like that word environment because it is so sort of neutral and secular. We don't live in an environment. We live in God's creation. This is his earth. He made it. Uh, and it's not so much that we have to care for it. It cares for us. Uh, if it were not there, we'd be dead and gone a long time ago. So we live within God's creation. And yet this is an issue which seems often so weak uh, and neglected and sometimes even opposed and rejected by Christians, including even some evangelical Christians. I sometimes wonder why, and I think it's perhaps because they've got a um, damaged Bibles. And I, I, I don't mean, well, I do mean this slightly cynically, but it, it almost feels as if they have Bibles in which the first two pages and the last two pages have dropped off, you know, uh, because, you know, we, we know about Genesis 3 and the reality of the fall and our rebellion and our sin and disobedience against God, and you're a sinner and you need to have that dealt with. And we know about Revelation 19 and the day of judgment, uh, and you need to be safe in the day of judgment. And I've got good news because the Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with your sin, and he can make you safe in the day of judgment. Uh, and that's a wonderful biblical truth, and I believe it. Please, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, my own personal faith stands on that foundation. But the Bible doesn't begin with the fall and end with the day of judgment. It begins with creation and it ends with new creation. It begins with Genesis 1 and 2 and ends with Revelation 1 and 2. And in between those two great poles of creation and new creation, we have this whole mission of God as we saw in the opening sentences of this talk expressed in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says that God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and earth into unity, into reconciled, healed unity under Christ. So it's worth just spending a few moments, I think. Uh, if, if, if I had another hour or two, we could, we could really go into a theology of creation, the goodness of creation, the, the glory of creation, the goal of creation, I'll be doing that uh, on Monday uh, at a meeting of the Association of Chinese Evangelical Ministers, I think, or something like that, uh, on Monday. But just a few points that we might bring in. For example, it is clear to me in the Bible that all of creation is included in God's plan of redemption and reconciliation, uh, as well as people from every tribe and nation and language, that there is a creational message of redemption in the Bible as well as a personal and a human aspect. Of course, we have to keep them together in our integration. But the Old Testament, for example, speaks about the new creation. In fact, that's where the phrase comes from, uh, from Isaiah chapter 65, where God says, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. And I said I am creating because it is in, in the participial form. Uh, God says, that's what I'm doing. I'm in the business of creating a whole new heaven and earth. And then there's the description of it in the beautiful earthy language of the rest of Isaiah 65, where it speaks about uh, the fulfillment of family life and human life and working life and farming life and, uh, and even creational life itself. It's a beautiful picture, 
put some of the sort of green images of, new, of, of, of the world in, in the shade, really, this picture of new creation that's there. And then also, uh, many times in the Old Testament, whenever God acts in salvation or redemption, the whole of creation is called upon to rejoice because what God does for his people will have creational implications. The opposite is true, of course, that when human beings sin and rebel against God, creation suffers. And the prophets show that very clearly. But when God comes to redeem and to reconcile the, his people, then let the heavens rejoice, says Psalm 96. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resign. Let the fields be jubilant, the trees of the forest. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Why? Because he's coming. And he's coming to judge the earth, which means to put things right. And he will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So the Old Testament itself, in many other places, not just this, speaks about the inclusion of creation in God's redeeming purposes. And that's therefore why the Apostle Paul can do so also in Romans chapter 8 with that great passage about the, uh, the whole creation looking forward to the redemption of the sons of God, the resurrection of our bodies, that when we are restored to the resurrection new life that was first modeled in the risen Jesus, Paul says he will make our bodies to be like his risen body. So we're not going to be souls up in heaven with, you know, wings and harps and nighties and things. Uh, we're going to be risen human beings like the Lord Jesus in that new creation. And so Paul links together resurrection and redemption of creation, liberation of creation from its bondage to decay there in Romans chapter 8. And, of course, the passage that I've already quoted from Colossians chapter 1, where he talks about the reconciliation of all things through the blood of Christ. That means, I think, that we need to understand that when Peter talks about uh, the creation, the heavens and the earth being burnt or destroyed by fire, as he puts it in 2 Peter 3, my own interpretation of that is this is a purging fire, not an obliterating fire. Um, the, there is a certain line of thought within uh, evangelicals who reject the whole idea of ecological or environmental concern. It goes something like this, and again, I'm sort of caricaturing, but it's, why bother with the earth if it's all going to be burned up? To which I think a reasonable answer is to say, okay, uh, next time you go to the doctor, if it's a Christian doctor, they'll say, so why should I bother caring for your body? You're going to die anyway. Uh, your body's going to rot in the grave, or it might be get burnt up in a crematorium, uh, so let's not bother with it now. Okay? Ridiculous argument, because we believe in the goodness of our bodies. We believe they're created by God in the image of God, and we believe in the resurrection of the body because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, Christians have always been committed to areas like medical care and practical care for, for the poor and the sick and the needy, just as Jesus was. And if that is the case for our human body, so it is for creation. Whatever is going to happen to this world as it is, is not a reason that we shouldn't care for what belongs to Christ now. But in any case, I don't think the burning or, uh, is in 2 Peter 3 intended to mean simple obliteration. Why? Because in the first part of the chapter, if you just bear with me for one moment, in the first part of the chapter, he, what he's talking about is people who are saying, well, there's never going to be an end to the world. You know, we're never going to have a day of judgment. Where is this day of judgment you're talking about? This is all nonsense. And Peter says, what you're forgetting is that God's done it once already in the flood. And he talks about how the world of that time was destroyed. Same word. 
by the waters. Now, what was destroyed in the flood was not the whole planet Earth. I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about the extent of the flood. I'm simply talking that what happened in the flood was the purging of a wicked, sinful human society from off the face of the Earth, apart from Noah and his family. And so, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So when Peter talks later, a few verses later, about the elements being destroyed, the same word, he's talking about the destruction of all that is evil, the world as a place of evil and sin, to be purged and redeemed and cleansed by fire. But, he says, in keeping with his promise, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, a world in which which John then sees in Revelation as the place where God himself will dwell in righteousness. So therefore, I don't read out of 2 Peter 3 a theology of obliteration, but a theology of cleansing, restoration, redemption, and renewal uh, for the creation itself, if we link it to Romans 8. And so therefore, our final destination is not just heaven, but the new creation. And this is where I find that Again, a lot of Christians, including very faithful evangelical Christians, seem to have just not noticed the way the Bible ends. Again, I don't want to be cruel, but you know, when we talk about going off to heaven and going up to heaven and dwelling on high and things above, have we forgotten that at the end of the Bible, we don't go anywhere? We don't go up. God comes down, as Isaiah prayed that he would. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and do something about this earth. And that's what John says he sees, is that there will be a new creation in which the city of God, which is that new creation, uh, like a bride dressed for her husband, becomes a reality for the whole of creation, so big that it's 25,000 miles cubed or whatever the dimensions are there in Revelation 21 and 22. But it's a picture of that new creation in which, according to Revelation, again, the verses there in in, uh, 21, verses 24 to 26, all the wealth and glory and product of human creative ability and civilization will be brought into the kingdom of God, the city of God, purged of sin and wickedness. There will be no evil, no deception, no guile, no corruption, no lust, none of those evil things. But the kings of the earth will bring their glory, their splendor into the city of God. Wonderful balance between the glory of God being the light of the city and the glory of human beings being brought into the city. Glory is the word used in both cases. But this is not arrogant glory. This is not human beings exalting themselves against God. This is human beings being able to do and to give all that God has made us able to do and to bring it into the city of God. So therefore, it seems to me we need to develop a a creational theology, which is also a human theology because we are part of creation. We were mandated to be the kings and priests of creation, and Revelation says that's what we will be in the new creation. God has made us kings and priests, and we will serve on the earth, says Paul, says John in Revelation. Not somewhere up there, but when God transforms the world into the new creation. So therefore it seems to me, and that's, that's a very brief survey of just some texts, in which a theology of creation, I think, drives us to a proper biblical ecological dimension to our mission. 
In other words, what I'm trying to say is that, as the Cape Town commitment puts it, and again I'm quoting, that we cannot claim to love God while abusing what belongs to Christ by right of creation, redemption, and inheritance. Isn't it astonishing that there are Christians who want to say that they're obeying that first greatest commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart, and yet feel at liberty to trash God's property uh, and to have no care about issues of environmental pollution and destruction and the loss of species or climate change and all these other areas, um, simply because, as it were, they've got this theology of obliteration. No, we, and the we is underlined there because what it actually means is we as Christians, we should be caring for the earth and responsibly using its abundant resources, not according to the rationale of the secular world. In other words, we're not just those who are Christians involved in this kind of area, and I know quite a number, are not there simply because they bought into the secular green agenda or into uh, a purely technical or scientific analysis uh, or simply out of fear, you know, that we're all either going to drown or fry if we don't do something but, you know, climate change. It's not for those reasons. If we are going to inv include creation care within our five marks of mission, which is what I'm arguing, it must also be integrated into the Lordship of Christ. It's also part of our understanding of what the gospel includes. In other words, we care for the earth and use it not for the rationale of the secular word, but for the Lord's sake. Because if Jesus is Lord of all the earth, which he says he is, then we cannot separate our relationship to Christ from how we act in relation to the earth. For to proclaim the gospel that says Jesus is Lord, which is the very heart of the gospel, is to proclaim the gospel that includes the earth since Christ's lordship is over all creation. I find that I can't escape from the fairly direct logic uh, of, of the closing sentence of that part of the Cape Town commitment and its statement. So what we tried to do, I'm not sure if I go back to my diagram, no, I hope you can remember the diagram. What I've tried to do up to this point, and I want to make just three concluding points in a moment, is to argue that we need an integrated understanding of mission. I don't want us to think of these five marks as just, as I said earlier, marbles in a bag, you just pick whatever you want. I want us to say these are the things that connect into what the Bible says the kingdom of God includes and is all about the proclamation of the Lordship of Christ, the demonstration of it in lives that are lived individually and in community, uh, following the examples of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking justice and caring for the needy and the poor, teaching believers to be disciples, and caring for the earth in which God has put it because it belongs to him. These are things which I think we need to hold together within an integrated understanding. But let me just conclude with these three uh, final points at the end. The so what has to come back. What are the implications of all this? What does it actually mean for the mission of the church? Well, I think three things. First of all, it must mean that God's whole mission is for God's whole church. That's to say, mission is not a specialist activity for a few paid professionals who we support and send and tell to get on with the job on our behalf. The traditional understanding of missionary work. Now again, I really do not want to be misunderstood. I'm not denying or criticizing the rightful role of those who are called and paid for and sent and commissioned by the church to engage in cross-cultural mission in other parts of the world, to plant churches, to teach the gospel, to do all kinds of things. Of course, that's an important part of what we mean. But what I'm trying to say is that mission, that's not what 
mission is only in the church. Rather, the church itself exists for the sake of God's mission. It's not that God has got a mission which is entrusted to a few people within the church who go out and do the mission, but rather that God has a church for His mission. God is on mission, and because God wants to bring blessing to all nations, that's why He called the people of Abraham. That's why He called this people. That's why we are God's elect people, if we want to use that language of choice and election. God called Abraham, God chose Abraham in order that he would be a blessing to the nations. And Paul says that's the gospel. He says that in Galatians. So therefore, everything that the church is and does should be missional, should connect to the reason why we exist. If we somehow think that some things are mission and others aren't, I think we basically lost the plot. Now, Leslie Newbegin used to make what I think is quite a helpful distinction between missional dimension and missional intention. He said that everything the church is and does is missional by dimension simply because of the reason why the church exists. We exist in history to serve the mission of God. We shall exist for all eternity to bring him worship as we serve him in the new creation. The church is to glorify God forever. But within the history of a fallen, sinful world, the church exists because God has a mission, and therefore we have a missional dimension, as it were, to all that we do in our church. It should be serving that purpose. And then uh, within that missional dimension, we will undertake specific actions, programs, projects, sendings, missions, all the activities that have direct missional intention of bringing the kingdom of God to confront the kingdom of this world, uh, to bring the reality of faith into a world of unbelief, to develop that front line where the gospel meets the world and the kingdom of God meets the kingdom of this world. And so we are intentional about mission, but we exist for the sake of mission. However, don't be overwhelmed by this because as it says the second line there, not everybody is expected to be doing everything because that's what sometimes confuses people when I speak on this subject from in, in a number of places, talk about, you know, holistic integrated mission. Someone often says, yeah, but look, you know, you're, you're talking about preaching the gospel and, and teaching and theological education and caring for the poor and healing the sick and hugging the trees and saving the whales and all that. And I can't do all that. There's only one of me and I say, yeah, I think God probably thought of that too, which is why he created the church. There is a multiplicity of giftings within the church and a multiplicity of callings within the church. All of us ought to be bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. And some of us are particularly specifically gifted with the calling and task of evangelism. Paul says that. Not all do that, but all of us are called to share in that overall work. All of us, says Paul, are called to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. We should be mutually teaching and building each other up in the faith. But some are gifted and called to be teachers within the church. James says, not many, but there are certainly those who are gifted that way, and they should exercise that gift whether as pastors or as professors or whatever else. All of us surely are to be ready to do acts of kindness and love and generosity and care for those around us. And some are called specifically to work in those areas. 
their vocational calling is in seeking justice or in the political sphere or in the economic sphere or whatever it is. And God puts them in those places as disciples of Christ to work in those ways. All of us surely ought to be living in a way that is responsible within this creation, caring for the earth in general ways that we seek to avoid being wasteful uh, and all the kind of ethics that we have in that area. And some are called into environmental biology or into scientific cons conservation work or research or advocacy in those areas, like, for example, Arosha and uh, other Christian organizations that see their vocation in that field. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is that there is, uh, as a church, we should be doing a kind of missional audit and asking ourselves, are we, as it were, plugged into these five marks of mission? making sure that we are integrating them, that we are committed to all of them. Not just saying, well, you know, we'll really be a socially-minded church, or we will just be an evangelistic church, but rather that we ask ourselves, how are we committed to all that God's mission involves and to responding under the Lordship of Christ? God's whole mission is for God's whole church, and therefore the church's mission includes every church member. But, as I've said, we have different callings and different giftings. See, if the whole church exists for God's mission, then so do all its members. That's to say, if the church, by definition, is missional, because that's what it exists in the world for, then all Christians are missional by calling. Again, this is to try to challenge that mistaken paradigm that some people in the church are those who get into mission either because that's their passion uh, or that's what they get paid to do or we've sent them out to do it. And all the rest of us, well, not quite sure what our connection to mission is. Um, even the, the language that we use in my own church back in, at All Souls Church in Langham Place in London, um, we speak about our mission partners, um, which is great because there's, I think there's about 50 or 60 of them and, and, and the church is very generous in supporting and praying regularly for those who are in other parts of the world uh, engaged in all sorts of dimensions of mission, including all these five marks. But I once said from the pulpit, I said, you know, if, if those are our mission partners, what are the rest of us then? Are we, what, sleeping partners or non-mission partners or what? No, we are all in this together. In fact, that is the theology that they do believe in. Um, the, the, the rector of All Souls, Hugh Palmer, once said on a World Mission Sunday, he said, All Souls sends out 1,500 mission partners every week, which is approximately the membership of the whole church. And then he added, and a few of them are serving overseas. And what he meant was that every time we go out the door of the church, we are entering the mission field. We are going out on mission for Christ into the world to where the front line is. The front line is not in some other country. It is, of course, there, but the front line is wherever faith meets unbelief. And that can be next-door neighbor as well as the next country. It can be in your place of work. It can be in your own home or school or university, whatever it is. That is where God calls us into mission uh, every day. And therefore, finally, uh, not just that God's whole mission is for God's whole church, and God's whole mission includes every church member, but every church member's mission then must include the whole of life. In other words, if that last point I just made calls for a change in our paradigm of the church's practice of mission, that it's not just a specialist activity for a few, this calls for a change in our 
personal understanding of our own lives, that we need to somehow, and this is a huge battle in the contemporary modern Western church, we need somehow to get rid of this toxic dichotomy between the sacred, sacred and the secular. The, the idea that somehow God sits up in heaven concerned only with the religious things we do, the sacred bit of our lives, and isn't really interested in what for most Christian people is what they have to spend most of their lives involved with, namely their work or their family, just living. Uh, and so it seems to me that that idea that the workplace, the public arena, uh, the place where most Christians spend most of their lives somehow is, uh, is unimportant. We need to remove that and to realize that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore, he is Lord of all life. 24-7, that the kingdom of God calls us to serve the mission of God wherever we are and in whatever we do, including all the vocations and callings and workplaces and family life that we're involved with. Again, that was a very strong passion of John Stott. Uh, it's why, as well as the Langham Partnership, serving uh, particularly pastors and those who train Christians in other parts of the world, why he also founded the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity which was much more a lay-oriented movement, seeking to encourage Christians in all the professions and in all areas of everyday life and work to get back to what used to be a very strong Christian tradition, going back to the Reformation and the Puritans, which is that all of life and all work can be offered to the glory of God. We used to sing hymns like that in the old days when we actually did sing hymns. Uh, you know, forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labor to pursue, thee, only thee, resolve to know in all I think and say and do. That's a biblical theology of work. Or teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, that what I do in everything I do as unto thee. George Herbert. Uh, and he even has that verse that the servant with this clause makes drudgery divine. Even a slave's work, as Paul had said in Colossians, makes drudgery divine. Who sweeps a room with this clause, that is, unto God, makes that and the action fine. We need to get back to that biblical theology that the whole of life is for our discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is, as he claims in the Great Commission, the Lord of heaven and earth, then there's no place on this planet that doesn't belong to him. There's no job, there's no part of life, uh, there's no mode of existence that is exempt from the Great Commission and its command to us not only to be disciples, but to make disciples in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ.